0: Hi, welcome back to Thoughts on Walks. This is episode number five. So, wow, what a difference a day makes. Um, I did not record an episode yesterday because I was out in the woods doing a little hunting. And uh, it was a very chilly morning. I got out there um, pretty early. It's uh, a place that I go to about uh, 20 minutes uh, east of here. And... uh, it's in beautiful farmland and woods. And uh, I, uh, I got out there and was in the woods and I was trudging through about a foot of snow. Um, it wasn't super cold. It was probably 29 or 30 uh, when I got there. And I uh, walked into the woods about half an hour before sunrise and uh just to make sure I could f- find where I wanted to sit down for a little bit and uh, I uh I got a little bit cold my just in my toes I wear these L.L. Uh, Bean wool pants and an L.L. Bean Maine hunting guide jacket that I absolutely love and uh but my toes got a little cold sitting there and uh but it was a Absolutely beautiful day. I was sitting on the side of a, um, I was in a draw that was looking down into a creek, and just hit my back against the tree, sitting in the snow. Uh, could hear the brook kind of uh, babbling down there in the um, in the valley, and I was just enjoying being out there. And whether I saw any deer or not, which, long story short, I only saw two the whole day. But they, I uh, kicked them up when I was walking. And I, there was no way I could uh, engage either of them. And uh, anyway, I just uh, had a, a beautiful day. And then uh, right, right around noontime, it started warming up quite a bit. And I was in a um, an area where there were some pines. And all the snow that was laden on the branches started falling down all around me. And then on, on top of me as well. But... Uh, It just started getting warmer and warmer and warmer and by the time I was walking out which uh, as I mentioned was like about a foot of snow going in was um, uh, wet and crusty on top and uh, starting to melt all around and today as I'm walking right now I just checked my uh, weather app it's 54 degrees and sunny we had some bad rains this morning which melted the snow even more so now there's just like little uh sporadic mounds and green grass and i'm just in a a tiny vest and a long sleeve shirt that's it so uh like i said what a difference a day makes so on the last episode we left off uh, we were talking about the roycroft and albert hubbard and uh i think we left off around the second print shop the uh Roycroft was booming. They uh, went in a lot of different directions with uh, essentially chased whatever uh, drew demand from the public. So the if the market wanted furniture, they made furniture. If the market wanted copper goods, they made copper goods. And he would hire different artisans of different crafts. They would all kind of cross-train with one another, or many of them did, And but they certainly would train the... Um, Young men and women who worked there in whatever craft they uh, took a liking to, and another thing about him was if you weren't good at something and you wanted to uh, change a craft, he would let you try. He'd let you keep as long as you were giving an effort, he would uh, he'd let you try different things until you found what what you were well suited for, which uh, was just unheard of at the time. And again, he brought some of this leadership style with him from uh, the Larkin where he was allowed to implement these things there as well. So it's, I mean, it's just something else. There was 500 acres of uh, farms. I think there was 12 different farms uh, at the time. This is in the, area, in the era when, uh, you know, were post a message to Garcia, which was 1899. And then uh, working through the next decade is when the Roy Croft was really booming. Uh, he continued with the Philistine magazine he also started the second magazine i think i mentioned in the last episode briefly called the fra uh that was a bigger format so the uh, the philistine was like a uh, a small like reader's digest size version so a small uh version that would fit in a kind of a large pocket and uh the Fra was a much bigger format magazine because he could fit more advertising in it, and he was an ad guy, and he was selling his own things. And it was also uh, another reason for that was when he bought the Roycroft Press from Harry Tabor, uh, part of that deal was that Tabor got a percentage of the advertising uh Uh, Revenue from that. So he started a new magazine with more advertising, and uh, there was no, he didn't owe anybody else anything on that. And so all of that money, and he was still doing uh, his vaudeville tours, all that money he rolled back into the Roycroft, into the campus, and tried to make it better and better and better. He brought in uh, new artists and um, musicians, all sorts of things. He'd bring in any. Any famous people on uh, that he could get would visit the Roycroft and he'd get them to talk to the workers and they'd call an assembly. They'd ring that bell that I mentioned. They'd have an assembly and listen to a talk from these famous folks. And and I mentioned a few that were staying there at the inn, but uh, the list is really incredible like Susan B. Anthony, Booker T. Washington, Thomas Edison. I mentioned uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Ford and Uh, just anybody who was anybody at the time would come and speak. And Albert Hubbard would have his workers stop what they were doing and come out and listen. And, uh, you know, another interesting point of the inn was uh, Hubbard uh, didn't have room numbers. He named the room after famous people. And when you stayed in that room, he addressed you as that famous person's name. So... Uh, if you were staying, if you were a lady and staying in the Cleopatra room, he he addressed you as Cleopatra, or the John Ruskin room, or the William Morris room. Uh, Good morning, Mr. Morris, and how was your stay? And uh, it was just a quirky thing, but it was uh, a way that uh, all the rooms were named after famous folks, and the people who stayed in them got a little kick out of it, I think. And uh, there's a uh, peristyle which is a a large columned porch that connects the three buildings of the inn and uh i just imagine the conversations that took place on the peristyle there Uh, i I go there occasionally and my wife and i all sit on the peristyle in the evenings in the summertime and uh when the weather is like it is um, in the wintertime here it's cold and blustery you're sitting just inside and it's Nice and warm, and you're looking out on the peristyle, and you think about your summer times there. So, hang on one second. I'm gonna have a sip of coffee. Oh, that's good. Um, so, Albert Hubbard was called upon to um, to give addresses, and this, uh, as I mentioned, he spoke on the vaudeville circuit. Uh, and in 1912, when the uh, Titanic went down. Uh, William Randolph Hearst uh, of uh, Hearst uh, newspapers asked uh, Albert Hubbard if he would do a a commentary on the uh, sinking of the Titanic and uh, from a a, like a narrative story from first person perspective which was interesting because he was not there but he was asked to write this because he was so popular at the time and uh, we were sp- speaking in uh, the f- first episode, I believe, on, on the Roy Croft and Albert Hubbard about this dichotomy between here he was uh, trying to represent the common man in simplicity. But after a message to Garcia, he also catered to the captain's industry and big business. So he kind of had one foot on each side of the fence, but he was relatable uh, f- to both sides. And so he was very, very popular. And when Hearst uh, asked him to write this article, uh, by all accounts he did a, he did a great job and he he, um, he mentioned the, the death of I mean there were some big names that went down on the Titanic uh, John Jacob Astor, uh, Benjamin Guggenheim the Guggenheim family, um, uh, Isidore Strauss, who owned Macy's. and uh, that's how when he concluded his article, he focused on Isidore Strauss and his wife and how, you know, they lived together, they died together. Uh, they, they, uh, she had given up her spot on the uh, rescue boats so that other women and children could, could go. And he thought that that was just the ideal uh, picture of uh, love between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and uh, that they went down with the ship together by choice. And as luck would have it, just a, a few years later, he and his wife were also planning on a transatlantic voyage uh, with World War One looming over in Europe. Because of his notoriety, Albert Hubbard thought he could go talk some sense into the Kaiser and hopefully preclude war. Uh, he was planning a trip to do some studying of the little journeys anyway, but he was very against the war, did not want to see America drawn into the war, and so uh, he was able to uh, buy a ticket took his uh, with his wife before they departed. They had a meeting with all the Roycrofters and telling them that they were going to go they'd be gone a while and uh, that uh, Bert Albert Hubbard jr was uh, or the second was uh, going to be in charge of the Roycroft in their absence and to uh, follow him like you would uh, like you would follow uh, Albert Hubbard the fra, uh himself. And so they had this meeting, and they, uh, they traveled from East Aurora to New York, and they boarded the ship. They, he wrote a letter just before he boarded the ship, and uh, that ship happened to be the Lusitania, which was a few days later torpedoed by the Germans and sunk off the uh, coast of Ireland. And on it were Albert Hubbard and his second wife, Alice, who, much like his depiction of Isidore Strauss. Hi. Good. How are you? It sure is. It's really, what a difference a day makes, huh? I know. I know. Have a good one. Enjoy it. So much like... uh Isidore Strauss and his wife, Albert Hubbard, and his second wife, Alice, uh, were said to have locked themselves arm in arm. And that uh, one or the other of the two said, well, it it looks like they got us. And they strode back into their cabin and went down with the ship. And that was the end of Albert Hubbard and Alice Hubbard. Alice was a suffragette. They were both very active in uh, women's rights. And when you look at uh, old pictures of the Roycroft farms, they painted the silos with big signs that said, Votes for Women. And um, Alice was a a very astute businesswoman who ran the Roycroft when Albert was out on the road and so forth. We're going to talk more about Alice and Albert Hubbard's first wife Bertha in the the next episode Um, and like I had alluded to in the last uh, podcast that there was a bit of a dark cloud that hung over Albert Hubbard's life and the um, and the Roycroft as well and that involves both Alice and uh, his and Albert Hubbard's first wife Bertha and uh, what transpired there. But uh, I wanted you to have a good idea of the full story uh, before we get into that uh, one part of it that is a dark cloud. So getting back to um, the, after the sinking of the Lusitania, of course there was a memorial service in uh, here in East Aurora. Uh, The year was 1915. And the Roycroft went on under the supervision of uh, Bert for until 1938, I think is when they, they went bankrupt. And uh, that they, stayed very popular for a very long time. And it was only the, the um, Depression that really brought them down and um, the cost of uh, goods. And people just weren't outfitting their homes in the arts and crafts style anymore. But if you like craftsman design and uh, the arts and crafts movement, uh, it has become incredibly popular again. And the campus uh, was, uh, following the bankruptcy, was sold off to various entities. And uh, the chapel that I spoke about in the last podcast was the uh, town hall for a while. And it was also a Baptist church, an actual chapel. (laughs) for uh, a number of years, and the, um, there's, through this resurgence, starting really in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, there was a couple of locals who, who um, wanted to make sure they saved as much as they could of the Roycroft history, and a lot of the Roycrofters and their descendants uh, lived in East Aurora still at the time. And there was one woman uh, who was just instrumental in the resurgence and the restoration of the Roycroft Inn and um, the renewal of the campus and the entire effort and her name uh, was Kitty Turgeon. She passed away a couple of years ago. But through her efforts and the efforts of a lot of volunteers, the Roycroft campus was named a National Historic Site and which opened up some funding to, uh, to restore it. it uh, they do have a, a patron of the, in the Margaret L. Wendt Foundation, which still owns the, the Roycroft Inn and the chapel, and the Roycroft Campus Corporation has the rest of the campus. It is an amazing place, and I would encourage you, if you happen to be visiting anywhere near western New York uh, it is a a must see if you're a fan of uh, the arts and crafts movement or uh, uh, um, arts and crafts movement or anything to do with that era in history even the Frank Lloyd Wright uh, the the connection there is um, Frank Lloyd Wright the, probably the the pinnacle work of his prairie era is the Darwin Martin House in Buffalo, and also uh, Graycliff, which was the Darwin Martin and his family's uh, summer home down on uh, on Lake Erie, on the cliffs of Lake Erie. And uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, his first commercial success, his first commercial commission was building the administrative offices for the Larkin Soap Company. So Albert Hubbard and Frank Lloyd Wright were contemporaries. Um, And uh, Darwin Martin was Albert Hubbard's protege. He took Albert Hubbard's job uh, in the Larkin Company and before that he was uh, an accountant when albert hubbard worked there so they were friends they were contemporaries and um even when if you've studied frank lloyd wright and you know the um the troubles that he had in his marriage and uh so forth his when there was actually a warrant for his arrest at one time and during that time his uh his wife was uh was uh, stashed away in the Roycroft Inn to stay there while the trouble (laughs) flew over. So um, in the Roycroft Inn, the peristyle that I spoke of, uh, is very much in line with uh, some of the uh, clean lines of the Frank Lloyd Wright architecture. It's the same era, around 1905, uh, when the Darwin and Martin House was built, by Frank Lloyd Wright, and when the peristyle was added to the, uh, Roycroft Inn. So it's not surprising that, uh, there were common influences there. There is also a, what's called the Roycroft Renaissance Movement, which is local artisans who are, uh, juried artisans that, uh, are renewing the spirit of the Roycroft movement and arts and crafts and had heart and hand. And um, there is a a statue that is erected to commemorate the Roycroft Renaissance on the Roycroft campus. And the interesting thing is the person who sculpted that made that uh, statue out of rejected torpedo steel. I don't know if that was by design or irony, since the Albert Hubbard and his wife Alice went down on the Lusitania, which was torpedoed by the Germans. So I, I really don't know uh, if that uh, was by designer or if that is just coincidence, but uh, it's a fact nonetheless. And uh, if you've ever read um, any of the books by uh, Jeff Goins, who... Uh, writes about writing. Uh, his most recent book is called Real Artists Don't Starve. And there's a, uh, one of the things that he focuses on there as a central theme was how um, there's this aura of the starving artist. And, and he posits that that does not have to be, that artists can uh, not just survive, but thrive uh, while practicing their art. And he points to Michelangelo as an example of that. And the interesting connection is, uh, in 1901, the um, Pan American Exposition was going on here in Buffalo, and of course the Roycrofters were uh, involved there. And Albert Hubbard was was walking through the exposition, and he saw a statue of Michelangelo by an American sculptor named Paul Bartlett, uh, who I think was commissioned to to produce that for uh, Congress, and I think it is still in one of the halls in Congress. I would have to look that up to verify, but uh, uh, Albert Hubbard was kind of taken with the statue since, um, if if anything, Michelangelo was looked at by the artisans of the Roycroft and the artisans of the arts and crafts movement as kind of a patron saint uh, of, um, of head, heart, and hand, but also that he was able to practice his art and to thrive. And in Jeff Cohen's book, uh, he peels that back with some research that was done uh, that showed that Michelangelo was a thriving artist, was a very, very wealthy man, Um, based on, uh, payments from his, his commissions and his patrons. And interestingly, uh, Albert Hubbard contacted Paul Bartlett when he saw that statue, asked him to, uh, to make another statue in, uh, in miniature, uh, well, not miniature, but a smaller size, um, than the one that Paul Bartlett produced for the Hall of Congress. And, uh. So Albert Hubbard wanted that statue uh, to on the Roycroft campus to represent the artisans that were there. So that was in 1901. A year goes by and no statue yet. Two years goes by and Albert Hubbard contacts Paul Bartlett and Bartlett says he's working on it. You know, a couple more years goes by, still no statue. And then uh, after much prodding in 19, I think it was 1908, the statue arrives, and it is an exact replica of the one that Hubbard saw, smaller but an exact replica, and with one exception. And at the bottom, uh, uh, to the left foot of Michelangelo on the statue is a bronze turtle that, uh, with a note that says something along the lines of patience, real art takes time. And uh, interestingly, that statue, uh, uh, when it was placed on the uh, Rycroft campus, uh, stood proudly. And then um, uh, another statue, this one of Albert Hubbard in bronze, uh, to scale with uh, the Michelangelo one was done by, Jerome Connor, the Irish artist who I mentioned uh, sculpted the North face or the North Wind, which I talked about in an earlier episode as well. So those two statues stood side by side on the Roycroft campus uh, from 1915 on until the um, campus went uh, the Roycroft went bankrupt in 1938. And then a few years went by, and to ensure that those statues uh, wouldn't be lost, they were purchased by a local businessman who had an affinity for the Roycroft movement. And his name was Irving Price. And he purchased those statues and actually had them moved across the street to what is now the East Aurora Middle School. Uh, It was the high school at the time but it's the middle school, and those statues overlooked the Roycroft campus. And the reason they moved them was because the campus was being uh, parceled off for uh, for new new owners, and uh, it was no longer a, a jointed campus, and with a unified mission, it was just real estate at that point. And uh, so he wanted to make sure that those statues were not going to be lost in that. And the connection there is that in 1930... Irving Price founded a little toy company uh, with a partner and also with his wife who was an illustrator of children's books. And that company made toys here in East Aurora and I'm actually walking by it now and it is the headquarters for Fisher Price Toys, which if you're anywhere close to my age uh, you probably played with growing up and maybe you've bought them for your kids or your grandkids and uh, so fisher price toys is also an offshoot uh, at least indirectly from the roycroft and one thing that i found interesting as well another connection there was uh, fisher price also uh, incorporated a lot of very similar uh, employee friendly um, tactics that Albert Hubbard did, and one of those was profit sharing. And annually, they would have the um, uh, the, the profit sharing uh, accounts divvied up, and he would pay all the original employees in silver dollars, which is uh, a lesson learned from uh, Albert Hubbard and the carts of fieldstone that Alibaba. Uh, collected on the corner of Main and Grove with the silver dollars, knowing full well that those dollars would be spent here in the little village of East Aurora, and Irving Fisher did the same. Or excuse me, Irving Price did the same. Irving Price, not Irving Fisher. Irving Price. And uh, so, once again, another little uh, connection. It's amazing how many little things in life are, are connected once you... Um, step back from them a little bit, and so I'm going to leave off um, the the cloudy area that I said I was going to mention about the Roycroft for this episode. We'll come back and and um, maybe talk about that tomorrow. And uh, I think the weather's supposed to be decent. If it's not, then maybe I'll crank up the the f- uh, fireplace and throw a couple fresh logs on there and do a. Uh, fireside chat on the show instead of uh, thoughts on walks but I don't know if I'll <laughs> as I walked f- uh, past a few people on this walk um, people seem very happy to see the sun again and uh, I don't know if I'll leave those conversations in or if I'll take them out uh, during editing <laughs> but uh, it's uh, I, I enjoy the sun too but boy I miss the snow I'll take the snow over the rain anytime Hang on a second while I have a little sip of coffee. Oh, that's good coffee. So I will leave you with that. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Uh, Try to live as your best self and embrace some simplicity in your life. And I look forward to talking with you on the next episode of Thoughts on Walks. Take care. Okay, I have to do a PS here. Um, I don't know if I'll add this onto the show or not, but um, right after I turned off the recorder, I'm walking down the street, and there's this old lady and this old guy, and uh, they're talking real loud to one another. And then all of a sudden, the lady says, what? And the guy says, what? And she said, I can't hear you, what? And he goes, what? (laughs) And then she said, I asked you what? And he said, What? Hang on. And then he filled it around with his ear. He goes, My damn hearing aid battery's dead. <laughs> what did you say? And she goes, I said, What? And he said, What? <laughs> I was just dying. It was like an Abbott Costello skit. Anyway, I just wanted to share that with myself, I guess, probably, and maybe you. All right, talk to you later.